Welcome to Bespin Ice Cream Stand. I'm Josh O'Rourke, and with me as always, faster, more intense, Bennett Campbell Ferguson. <laughs> I try to live my life faster and more intense, and also by a quarter of a mile at a time, but I think that's a different podcast. <laughs> hey, that goes without saying. <laughs> Well, today we're starting the first of our series on George Lucas and his life and his career, and obviously Star Wars. Um, we're hoping to break it up into three parts, unless I change my mind and edit this later, <laughs> and it's seven parts. You're not going to like pull a special edition on this trilogy, are you, Josh? And like add like Jabba the Hutt uh, slinking around the docking bay. A podcast is never finished; simply abandoned. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all day. Um, so we're going to uh, – I was thinking if you're okay with it, Ben, maybe we could talk about George Lucas's early life up to about film school uh, and give kind of the uh, the lightning round. The To me, that's always the boring part of a biography. I, I get like that's where people come from, but for me, I don't need to know you know, a quarter of a book about somebody's parents and – what job they did and stuff. I think it's an interesting footnote, you know? In in some ways, I feel that way, which is why I was sort of surprised when I was reading uh, of the Brian J. Jones's book, George Lucas, A Life, which uh, you read too, and I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of draw from mm -hmm. on this podcast. But in some ways, I actually found the early years to be the most interesting in that book because the, the more I I read about like the later years and, you know, kind of, Lucasfilm at the height of its powers, at least when it was under his leadership, I got really bummed out. I got I started feeling like, gosh, like, you know, George Lucas started out as this idealistic rebel who wanted to create a community for independent filmmakers. And then he sort of became the kind of guy he hated when he was a young man. <laughs> so so I, I, I ended up feeling really drawn to the story of his uh, early childhood and Modesto and, you know, his obsession with racing cars and how this this nearly uh you know fatal crash where his uh sort of iconic yellow car that he would race around town it got t-boned and jammed into a tree he uh flew uh flew out of the the because out of the car because the seat belt snapped and you know somehow he survived and and that was this formative moment that set him down the the path uh toward filmmaking and i i think it's really interesting too his his time at USC because the the guy who was at USC was not really the guy who made Star Wars or American Graffiti it was really the guy who made THX 1138 and and not only because THX 1138 was a more experimental film like almost more like a long montage than a traditional narrative but just in general because in his youth he was more of an experimental filmmaker and I find that interesting, although as a as a viewer, as a moviegoer, I'm glad that Francis Ford Coppola was there to kind of, you know, push him toward more, uh, uh, shall we say, accessible territory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's talk about that a little. I, I don't know that's jumping too far ahead, but uh, THX 1138, the feature film. Because um, we've talked about it before, um, you know, off mic, and I think we both sort of agree it's a little bit um, too cold of a film. Or am I putting words into your mouth? No, no, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, 
I mean, one thing I was struck by in the in the book is that it talks about you know George Lucas is a famous uh, ex-wife, Marsha Lucas, who was an editor on his films. Uh, really deserves a lot of credit for some of the best stuff in his movies. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, she was like, a, THX, George, it's too cold, it's too distant. And he was like, no, 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 it's all about emotion. But the thing is, like, a film can be about emotion and yet still not, like, provoke an emotional response in... Uh, in an audience and, and i mean there's a thin line between a film you know being about people who have no personality and having no personality as a film you know like, <laughs> like I'll, I'll tell you me, me and a friend uh, we saw uh thx on the big screen at the academy theater uh, a little over three years ago and, and and that was a really wow experience i mean just to be kind of uh you know absorbed in this uh this world and the, the these kind of you know mesmerizingly you know featureless white labyrinthine sets w was really amazing but then i watched it you know twice at home and was a uh, i found it to be just completely dull and drab and hard to get into and i mean obviously ideally any great film is made for the big screen but I think movies that are truly great, they, they kind of transcend the the venue and that, you know, you can watch it at home and you'll still feel the magic. And for me, with like THX, the magic completely uh, dried up once uh, once I like, you know, watched it in a, in a less forgiving environment. So I, I'm, I'm glad that he went in basically the opposite direction with, with his next two films. Oh, agreed. Uh, and I think the problem for me with THX is that it's such a vis uh, such a visual movie, but it's not backed up to me at least by any authentic emotion. Like, yeah. like I I know that's reductive to say, and that's uh, that's really black and white to say, but I just mean overall the movie lacks warmth, and I don't mean in the Hollywood way of of fake emotion. I just mean to say it's a movie that that doesn't feel fully fleshed out i get i get why he made it i get what he's trying to say i don't think he's saying enough i think he thinks it's a smarter movie than it is oh he absolutely does and i mean god if, if you listen to the audio commentary on the the dvd on the the so-called george lucas director's cut because <laughs> they knew can't resist that on any of them they huh? know they know <laughs> they know no they knew no one would buy it if it was just the director's cut because if, if it wasn't george lucas who cares but, you know, he, he really pontificates on that commentary. And some of it's actually quite interesting, except that just it just doesn't feel interesting when you're watching the film without him yammering, because <laughs> a lot of that stuff doesn't register. <laughs> but the thing that I continue to be struck by is that at its core, THX is a love story between Robert Duvall's character and Maggie McComey's character. But the problem is, like, you never feel fully they're, they're yearning for each other. It, it doesn't doesn't come through and and without that that desperation that that sense of desire the central struggle against this totalitarian regime it just doesn't feel like uh it matters enough it just doesn't really you know come through and, and sweep you away the way it should i think yeah the movie doesn't make you really care about the characters on an emotional level i, I get the plight i get what george lucas is trying to do 
Um, it's just not, um, it's not successful. And I think it's especially not successful just because you watched it at home, but because you rewatched it. For me, yeah, it's kind of a, a one and done. I don't revisit it very often. I do revisit American Graffiti a lot. And maybe that says something about my personality. But um, I love the optimism. I love that American Graffiti, in a weird way, is George Lucas reversing course, trying to make this uh, happy, optimistic movie that's character-based. And it's so the opposite of THX. And I think everything I love about Star Wars, you can see elements of that in American Graffiti. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I mean, in, in a weird way... I almost see them as companion pieces because they're ultimately about young people uh, finding uh, their their way in a, a difficult world. They're both about a search for identity. And the interesting thing is that on the surface, you know, Tia, uh, sorry, American Graffiti has a very kind of bittersweet ending because there's that really, you know, lovely and heartbreaking, you know, bit of text at the end explaining what happened to the characters that, kind of reframes American Graffiti as a tragic story. And the first Star Wars ends on a, a very upbeat, cheery note with, uh, you know, everyone getting a medal, except for Chewie. <laughs> Until the Rise of Skywalker, that is. Uh, but but then, ultimately, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, they uh, they bring a lot of that, that melancholy that we feel at the end of American Graffiti. So I'm really interested in George Lucas and his way of telling these coming of age stories and just the, the, the kind of uh, the kind of the thrill and the sadness of, of growing up and, you know, feeling life change. And I just continue to be so drawn to the journey of uh, Richard Dreyfus's character, uh, you know, being terrified to go out into the world, being, you know, terrified to leave the hometown and, uh, and then yet having that moment at the end, you know, when he's on the phone uh, with the woman and saying, you know, you know what, actually, I think I'm going to be gone by tomorrow and I'm not going to be, you know, cruising the, the streets. And just that realization of I got to get out, you know, that's uh, what I got to do, even if I'm afraid, even if I want to wrap this town around me like a security blanket. And it's uh, it's poignant, I think, to a certain degree, that's maybe partly George Lucas's story because that, that character is very much a George Lucas character right down to the, the curly dark hair and the, <laughs> the plaid shirt, you know, but uh, at the same time, it, it's sort of all of our stories, right? It's, it's, it's elemental just as much as Luke Skywalker's is. No, absolutely. It's the hero needs to go on a journey. And even if we don't see that journey, I, I feel like star Wars, you said that, that, that American graffiti is a companion piece. And I agree. It sort of feels uh, I won't. I won't be so crass as to say a sequel to American Graffiti, but that we mean to say a continuation of that idea of the kid on the quote-unquote farm, whatever that is, needing to get out, and what does he do next? I mean, also, I'd like to add that they're both films about, you know, friendship. They're both about the the kind of the, the family you find beyond your family. And I was really interested in how in American Graffiti, you know, authority figures are. Are largely absent, you know, with the exception of like a couple adult characters who come and co go. Like it's very focused on, on the kids and and, and their world, and it, and it stays true to that. And, and Star Wars, we see, you know, a bit more of older authority figures where it's you know Owen and Beru or 
Grand Moff Tarkin or even uh, Vader, but, but ultimately the soul of Star Wars is Luke, Han, Leia, R2, uh, uh, 3PO, and, and Chewie on the Millennium Falcon. And I think, I don't know, maybe not my favorite moment in Star Wars, but certainly one of my favorite moments is, uh, uh, you know, Luke and Leia, you know, and Han, after the Death Star has been blown up, you know, walking out of the docking bay with their arms over each other's shoulders, you know, smiling ear to ear, and you just feel like, well, this isn't just the beginning of a friendship. This is a beginning of a a family they've they've kind of built on their own terms they've you know left behind where they started and they're they're looking toward the future and the future is this trio well here's a question i was just thinking about you say there's no authority figures really in graffiti um do you think that it's a valid argument to say that star wars and basically george lucas's entire filmography um is is steeped in nostalgia too much? That's interesting. I mean, I, I guess before I answer that, let, let me ask you, like, like, ha, like, like, how, how exactly, how is like, how do you think that like connects to like this, this question of authority figures? Like, does he, I mean, do you think he feels like nostalgia for a time when he perceives there has uh, having been like, less authority in his life or the lives of young people. I'm thinking when you have these, like, like say high school moments, young adult moments, you're thinking of the good times with your friends. You're not thinking of the time you were at the DMV or stuck in the line or being (laughs) scolded by parents or whatever. So it's this uh, rose tinted glasses where it's only remembering the good times. You know what I mean? So there's no room for authority there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know that that that's interesting. Like I think, I mean, I think he is very nostalgic because I think with American Graffiti, he was uh, he was sort of bemoaning the the end of an era, a loss of a uh, of innocence. He was sort of saying, you know, he, here was this you know fun world. You know, it was all about cars and girls and great music, and then you know it all got fucked over by Vietnam, <laughs> basically, and. Uh, so I mean he's he's definitely looking back wistfully you know probably with rose colored uh, glasses, but and I don't want to like like downplay the role that you know authority figures uh, you know play in our lives when they're young because they certainly do play a role. I mean God, I, I mean I can give you a long list of you know teachers who sort of shaped my worldview and my parents as well, but then at the same time I, I feel like a lot of this is sort of like like true to like you know, what it is to, like, be a young person. Like, I mean, you're kind of, like, off on your own, like, cut loose a a lot of the time, like, sort of, you know, bumbling around, you know, making mistakes. I mean, I feel like we all sort of have our version of, like, Richard Dreyfuss, you know, getting kind of, like, caught up with the the gang and, like, you know, pulling off these sort of aimless pranks. And, I I mean, I've always, like, found it fascinating how, like, like, parents, like, often kind of vanish from, like, these these coming of age stories and, and maybe that's nostalgia, but maybe that's also a reflection of like, at the end of the day, no one can tell you how to, how to grow up, grow up. Like, even if like you're, you're, you're taught by older people, how to grow up, you don't really like learn the truth of those lessons until like, you're kind of like on the loose making a mess, I think, which is, I think what happens to both 
uh, Richard yeah. Dreyfus and Luke. I guess the only thing I would add is I'm terribly nostalgic, uh, which is why I, I can connect with with a lot of these themes, and also the theme of wanting to escape the small town you're from, and and I think there's a universality to it that everybody has a small town they need to escape from, but not literally necessarily. It could just be a relationship or or fear or something holding you back. And I, I think it's really cool that, that these two films sort of have that as, as a central premise. But I think the flip side of that that we haven't really talked about is after THX flopped, uh, I think this is when George Lucas starts to diverge from his path and starts thinking, what is commercially viable? And and it started out, uh, at least you know, from what we've read in a few different books, it seems like it started out with the best of intentions, uh, that he was going to shoot for commercial, uh, commercial films so that he could fund his art films, so to speak. But um, I, I think it's really interesting that so early in the George Lucas mythos, he was already thinking about being wildly successful. Maybe not Star Wars successful in his mind, but certainly commercially viable. Yeah, and I, I think in in George Lucas' life, you know, Brian J. Jones, you know, makes the point that like, however prickly George Lucas may seem, he does respond to the audiences. You know, he did you know demote Jar Jar Binks to a a very supporting role <laughs> after the reception. I Earth. love in um in uh I think I think it's that book in the Brian J. Jones book he talks about. George Lucas writing episode two, and before he had any ideas, he wrote episode two, Jar Jar's Great Adventure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously, he obviously he's responding and and has most of his career. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think that's true, and I, I think that you know, in terms of like like trying to you know think about what audiences want, like it's it's not inherently a bad thing because. I, I kind of feel like THX was made for an audience of one. I think it was made for uh, George Lucas. And, and maybe this is a little mean, but I, I sort of think he had his head up his ass <laughs> with that movie. Uh, although uh, although not, not according to the French who, uh, <laughs> who, uh, who, who put it in can for some reason, you know, that I wouldn't have had I been on, on that, you know, particular jury, but whatever. But I, I feel I feel like with you know American graffiti, you know him responding to Coppola's dare to like make something, um, you know, conventional and funny, uh, and and that was a that was a great challenge for him, and and to make something more like warm and 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 human, you know, a, a movie with you know bright colors and uh, you know like real emotion and and sex and great music, it, it just it came alive really. And I, I think that in that case, you know, it, it was good for him to, to think him about what audiences wanted. Cause it, it kind of, uh, it, it kind of like, sort of like got him out of a funk, got him out of, you know, just making movies for him. And so we got like kind of a, a perfect meeting because like American graffiti is a movie only he could have made, you know, it's, it's very intensely personal to him. And yet he spoke to a wider audience. So you kind of got the best of both, worlds so so i i don't think him like trying to like speak to a wide audience was ever a bad thing the problem is like when he stopped being a storyteller 
and just became like more of a of a mogul and and then i think like a lot of the niceties of good storytelling just kind of went out the window unfortunately and and it's easier both in retrospect and viewing george lucas through the sort of mogul lens to to dissect that and say well really was american graffiti his story yeah it was his spark but but was the warmth really him was the great dialogue in empire strikes back really him it's it's really easy to go back and sort of wonder like how much of george lucas was him just setting up other artistic people or recognizing talent or getting lucky i mean i think it's an interesting question and uh i mean i guess i, I how i respond to it is like isn't that sort of always the case with uh with any movie that's successful like like one thing i learned uh last year was that um uh my my favorite uh, line in Inception, uh, "We had our time together," wasn't written by uh, Christopher Nolan. It was written by Leonardo DiCaprio, and so it's like, okay, DiCaprio wrote the line, but then DiCaprio would never have written the line if Christopher Nolan hadn't, you know, come up with the whole world of Inception. So I, I, I feel like what it kind of comes down to is just the old cliche that happens to be true that you know filmmaking is sort of always uh, a, a team sport. Although I, I do think that it is worth keeping in mind that, you know, George Lucas, you know, certainly many times over was, was saved by very talented collaborators because one of my favorite uh, anecdotes in, in George Lucas alike was that, you know, the, the early footage from the first few days of shooting an American, American graffiti, it looked like shit, you know, it was, uh, it was all, they were shooting at night. It was way too dark. No one could see what was going on. And so, Pascal Wexler became a visual consultant on that movie. Uh, you know, started coming up at night, and and he did all these amazing things, like installing brighter bulbs in the street lamps so you could actually see the actors. And it's like, well, you know, without Haskell Wexler, American Graffiti probably wouldn't have been American Graffiti. It probably would have just looked like a crappy independent film where you know everyone was like in the shadows. <laughs> No, you're right. I mean, you make a good point. Film is a collaborative medium, and I I don't necessarily buy into the auteur theory anymore in the sense that there are too many variables and too many people and too many parts to give credit to one person. Sure, it's easy to blame one person, but I don't <laughs> think that's ever fair. Yeah, I mean, gosh, the, the auteur theory, I think <laughs> it's... I mean that God. We, I mean, we could do like a whole podcast to, about that because I think so many questions about the O2 or three come, come down to, uh, you know, how do we define an O2? Because I, I actually think you know we probably all have slightly different definitions, and and the like the the original definition like kind of put through by Andrew Saris, you know, maybe maybe doesn't you know hold up as well, and maybe has actually gotten kind of like lost in the shuffle. But that's another story. Um, I, I do want to, this is a little bit off topic, but I want to briefly talk about just the role that, um, that, 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 that sex and, and predatory behavior plays in, in American graffiti, because like upon rewatching the movie, I was really just, you know, struck by, uh, by how pervasive that is 
throughout. Like we, we have a teacher who shows up at the dance who's clearly uh, a, a, a pedophile. We have, uh, you know, Ron Howard, uh, you know, like really kind of creepily pressuring Cindy Williams to, to have sex with him. But, and, but then also like taunting her by, uh, by referencing her watching her brother. We don't know exactly what that means, but we can, <laughs> we can imagine because <laughs> clearly she's pretty horrified that he brings that up. And, mm. uh, and then also, you know, we have uh, the Mackenzie, you know, Phillips character, you know, in the car, like, you know, taunting and saying like, I'm going to tell that cop you tried to rape me and, and kind of almost like, like, yeah. like using, you know, sort of what power she has to, 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 to pressure him. Like, God, I've forgotten that character's name, but the guy with the cool oh, car. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't remember either, <laughs> but I, I was just. I was really like struck by like what a provocative uh, of of movie it is, and and it really like like kind of like feels like a very like honest portrait of a a world where these you know men both both young and old are are trying to you know exploit these women like you know like sometimes through like uh, like callousness, sometimes through you know something darker, and it just. I don't know if like that was all planned or, or that just kind of like 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 floated to the the surface like kind of naturally, but it's it's just interesting and I always like to say like no way would this movie be PG today. <laughs> I, I think the way I look at it is though it, it's like there, there's it, it's the line between you know what's the difference between like depicting a behavior and sort of a celebrating it exactly yeah because like like for instance uh i mean if, if we talk about a movie like uh like goldfinger uh there's the scene where uh where bond rapes a woman and it, it's it's played off like as kind of a, a joke like there's funny music and so you're seeing like sexual violence but the movie is saying like like oh you know, this is funny you can laugh at this you know it's not a big deal you know, whereas yeah. whereas you, I think I think the thing, the reason why for me actually American Graffiti does um, age well is because like you see these things happening, and you see what these men are doing, and, and you never see the movie saying, "This is okay, this is right." You, you see the movie, you know, like like showing you know Ron Howard pressuring Cindy Williams to have sex, and and the the movie the movie never goes. To that territory of saying like, oh, what Ron Howard, you know, does is uh, is okay. Like it, it, it makes him look, you know, kind of a kind kind of ugly and you know overbearing and and mean spirited. Like like what 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 possible way is there to watch a scene like that and and think that the movie is sympathetic, you know, toward uh, Ron Howard? I mean, he literally gets a. Uh, gets thrown out of the car like i see a moment like that and i i see that like oh that's the movie showing like this is the consequence for you know his behavior <laughs> i i don't want to like you know paint this like too much as a feminist movie because i mean i i certainly will admit that like the four characters <coughs> who are the best you know developed are the four main male characters and 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 they're really kind of the heart of the film it's it's their perspective that that drives the the film so certainly i do think it has to be 
acknowledge the the you know the, the women as like sympathetic to the them as the film is they do end up being kind of in the margins and, and i think it's probably significant that like when there's that text at the end really what happens to the characters we never find out what happened to the women it's all about the the men and i'm sure that's not a coincidence it's not a progressive film but it's certainly certainly could be worse which is me sounding like every white man in the 70s <laughs> Uh, but yeah, certainly that wasn't a priority, maybe for for American Graffiti. Um, God, I'm trying to remember what else. I feel like there was so much more that happened in the movie. Well, I mean, I'll bring up one thing. I mean, this is the beginning with his uh, decades long love affair with Harrison Ford, <laughs> and 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 actually, even though he's playing a minor character. I think he actually has one of the most poignant parts of the film. I, I love the idea of this sort of swaggering guy who, who's kind of an antagonist, really. And yet, it, at the end of the film, his car explodes, and all he can do is watch as this kind of symbol of his masculinity burns and is taken away from him. And it's it's just amazing, like how like the end of innocence and like illusions being ripped away is just like threaded into every element of the film. You know, even 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 the minor characters, like it's got it, it's a it's an extraordinarily consistent film. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think tonally it, it's really nice. Uh, obviously, it's through the veneer of nostalgia, but I and I will say shout out to all the music happening. I think like I can't even imagine what an editing nightmare that would be trying to get all these songs and and fitting them in perfectly. Well, I find it funny that you know George Lucas always called this uh, this movie a musical, which <laughs> I would kind of like to see American Graffiti, the actual musical. I think that'd be hilarious. Yeah. But it's a uh, it's re it's certainly not a musical in the traditional sense, and yet the music plays such a great role. I mean, my God, yeah. like like you just go on a ride with those uh, with those songs, which are also you know wonderfully chosen from you know like a. Uh, all summer long to run away. And I love the idea that it's a, uh, they're, they're not just, just there because like they're at least in theory, like they're being played by the band. They're coming out of the, the, the radio. They literally are the soundtrack of these characters' lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the way they use, since we've already talked about our tours and we're using our film degrees of, of using diegetic sound <laughs> and how the sound is actually happening within the film. I think yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just from the first crack of the snare in, in uh, the Bill Haley song at the beginning, it's just like, like what a great start to a movie that never kind of lets up, at least musically. Yeah, yeah. And my God, like just the way that movie like, like seizes you, like from the minute like it starts out at that diner, like you, you feel like you were there hanging out, you know, with these characters being swept along uh, a by the music and, and 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 by the way um the i feel terrible i can't i can't remember any of the characters names oh it's the, been the a minute nerdy, for me too the, the nerdy guy the dude with the glasses uh uh the the one who uh who goes to the liquor store later um with that that thing when he's like you know having trouble with the motorcycle or the vespa or whatever it is that i think that was actually uh something that went wrong during filming that they just uh kept and Apparently, audiences back in the 70s really hooted and hollered at it. So, you know, <laughs> good thing that accident happened. 
<laughs> Americans love their accidents. After American Graffiti came out and it was successful, what was next for George Lucas? Like, like what was his mindset? I, I'm trying to remember, was he trying to do his Flash Gordon thing after that? I mean, the, the funny thing is that he, you know, for a while at least, really thought he was going to do Apocalypse Now. And That's then, right. Uh, and then Coppola, you know, wanted more money uh, out of that deal. So, you know, George Lucas was kind of like, fuck that. Which, I mean, that's another thing that's really depressing about George Lucas' life is that you realize how many things in his story, like, come down to really kind of petty disagreements about money. Yeah, yeah, this weird interpersonal stuff where you're like, really? That's it? It was just some dick waving? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if, if Coppola had been more generous, you know, George Lucas might have made the apocalypse now, and then we maybe would have never gotten Star Wars. I I don't know, but it it's interesting how history plays out in that regard. Yeah, I, I got I get this like in my mind to have this um ascent for George Lucas starting at film school to THX the feature film, uh to American Graffiti where he every movie is getting a little more successful, and at some point he can't go back and try to make his little art films. I feel like it's this weird in joke. Or maybe he's just delusional that he thinks he's going to go back and make these tiny movies because his his ascent from one film to the next, it, they're clearly getting larger and more complicated and more technologically advanced. Um, so, I mean, maybe not in graffiti sense, but I, I guess I mean to say they have higher budgets and with success, why would he revert and try to make a tiny little movie again? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great point. And, and it, it really is a joke, you know, like the, the decades running comments about, oh, I'm, I'm going to go off and make my small films that nobody sees, Rawr. you know, and, and 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 yet and yet he keeps like getting, you know, bigger and bigger. And, and, and rarely have I seen a filmmaker like George Lucas, who is such a great example of someone who perceives themselves so differently than they are you know a guy who is like so leery of the idea of conventional entertainment and literally said that it was easy to make a movie that made people feel and was very like dismissive of that idea and and yet really his whole life ended up being about uh entertaining people and even now with like lucasfilm uh you know having been bought by disney you know well they're not you know making THX 1139, you know, they're, they're still trying to entertain people. So, so let me ask you this, Josh. I became a George Lucas fan because of Star Wars. You know, that was my entry way into it. You know, I, I didn't see American Graffiti until much, much later. And, and honestly, I, I read George Lucas a life because I wanted to read stuff about Star Wars. And yet, like, like perversely, I found myself uh, less interested in the stuff about Star Wars, because, I mean, partly that was some of it I'd heard before, but also just because, I mean, because I've watched American Graffiti fewer times, like, in a way, it still kind of feels like the the shiny to- new toy, <laughs> you know? And, and just, and also it feels like a time when, when George Lucas was, I guess, a pure artist and was, you know, making films more from uh, from the heart. I, I don't know, like, like, I, like, do you, do, do you ever feel that pull of um of American graffiti that like it? 
I mean, it's certainly not my favorite George Lucas film, Star Wars is, but do you ever feel like that in a way, like American Graffiti sort of like represents the best of George Lucas as a human being? I think that George Lucas, I'm William Shatner, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I think that George Lucas isn't a storyteller, one. He hates writing. And two, I, I don't know if he even likes directing because he certainly, certainly from all accounts, seems like he's he's distant. He only cares about the visual. He only cares about the technology. The emotion is, I want to say secondary, but let's say the emotion is last to him. And because of that, maybe he couldn't uh, do another one. It seems like, to me... After Star Wars, he got burnt out and he never recovered, and so he put his energy into other things. Yeah, I mean, I think you know he uh, he certainly put his energy into trying to control everything, and, and and there in you know lay his downfall because you know be, you know having obstacles was was partly I think what made him great to to begin with. I mean, that's what makes great yes. art in general, you know, constraints, not being able to to do exactly the thing you want to do. I was going to say not to jump ahead too much, but I mean, if you want to see what giving someone final cut and no obstacles is, I mean, that's the <laughs> prequel trilogy. But we're jumping ahead. So I think we should uh, call it a day on this. Did you have one more no, point I, you wanted I think to make, that, though? No, I think that covers it. I think I'll, I'll save it for uh, part two and three. You can find us on Twitter at Bespin Ice. You can find me on Twitter at IamJosho85. Ben is on Twitter at THOBennett with two N's and two T's. Ben, do you have anything going on in in the publishing world? Yeah, yeah. I think by the time uh, this episode's out, I'll have an article for ArtsWatch that's uh, a guide to the entire filmography of Denis Villeneuve. So if you're in a in a Dune mindset, you know you want to uh, uh, dive deep on you know some of the the earlier Villeneuve stuff from his uh, his uh, more Canadian film days, as as well as the newer stuff like Blade Runner. Then this you might want to check it out. Yeah, for my money, Arrival is and will always be his best oh, science fiction film. movie. Um, and I look forward to the hate emails, <laughs> but yeah, that's on Oregon arts watch and, and Ben is a regular contributor there and uh, has quite a bit of cool stuff there. So if you live in Oregon and want to know about the arts, <laughs> look out. Well, that's it. We'll see you next time. And the force will be with you always. <laughs>